0: If you looked at Lake Wingra in 2005, you would see a murky, shallow lake, clogged with algae. And if you peeked under the surface, you'd see the invasive fish responsible for the green water that people aren't quick to swim in. A century after this fish was introduced, the community around Lake Wingra decides to flip their lake from the murky state that it's in to its alternative state, a clear water state where sunlight can penetrate to its depths. They were going to attempt to change the biology of the lake by removing one nuisance species.
1: 300 miles to the north, a group of scientists were going to flip another lake. And this time, they were going to try to alter the inherent characteristics of the lake in order to drive out a nuisance species.
0: I'm Bonnie. And I'm Sydney. And you're listening to Introduced.
1: And today, Tim Campbell, the Aquatic Invasive Species
0: Specialist with um, Wisconsin Sea Grant is joining us, too. Hey, Tim.
2: Hi, how's it going?
0: (laughs) Good, thanks for being here. So Tim and Sydney, you've worked in Madison. How would you describe Lake Wingra?
2: Well, Madison has three lakes. And Lake Wingra is the smallest of those three lakes. It borders the Arboretum. A lot of people have hiked by it. So it's a pretty popular lake. It's a great place to kind of take your family out and enjoy the water without you know a lot of boats sipping by
0: yeah
1: yeah I'd say it's um it's pretty small and shallow and weedy like especially compared to the other Madison lakes um there's a dam on one side that feeds into Winger Creek and then ultimately out into Monona and in the spring you can see all the musky coming and trying to jump over the dam and that's really exciting and a lot of people come out and watch for musky Like, I personally have never looked at it and thought, like, this is a lake I really want to go swimming in. (laughs) But some of my friends were running past and tried to swim across it. And they said that it was kind of a scary experience. Like, they could feel so much weediness just grabbing at their legs as they were going across. And my friend said it felt almost like she was going to get pulled under by how weedy it is.
0: Yeah, I, I haven't seen many people swimming in it. I mostly see people, like, paddle boating in it. Need to try that sometime. But I don't think a lot of these people know about this plan of flipping the lake back in the early 2000s.
1: What do you mean by flipping a lake?
0: Yeah, so a lake can have two alternative states. And I love these metaphors that lake scientists use. Like, you often hear them saying pea soup. So one state of the lake is like, pea soup state. So it's murky and it's algae and it's green. And the murkiness is usually caused by an abundance of common carp or sometimes other bottom dwelling fish that stir up the sediment on the bottom. And the other state is the salad bowl state. And that means it has clear water and a lot of aquatic plants. And there's sort of a recipe that you can follow to flip a lake from murky to clear. So you have to start with a lake that's pretty shallow and this lake should have a moderate amount of nutrients so not too many nutrients like if it's in an area with a ton of agricultural runoff or too little nutrients like if it's in a cold northwoods forest does that make sense yeah so next you remove all the common carp and common carp they stir up the sediment and they muddy clear water because they can lay a lot more eggs they can eat basically anything and they Are able to live in polluted water once you take out the carp even if you don't get them all it gives the other fish a chance to rebound and it gives the lake a chance to clear out and gets the plants to grow like in a salad bowl so would this recipe work for lake wingra you might remember dick lathrop who told us about otis and his crayfish in the first episode in the early 2000s dick was 23 years into his career as a lake scientist at the Department of Natural Resources, and he was attending Friends of Lake Wingra meetings, mostly because he's done research on Lake Wingra before. He also thought that he could help them clear up the lake, which is something that they've been trying to do for a while.
3: The Friends of Lake Wingra were having their annual meetings, and I was going to them, and they were talking about all the watershed work they wanted to do to clean up their lake. Uh, the rain gardens and all these things are great. But I was telling them that if you don't get a handle on the carp prop- problem, the population, the overabundant carp in Lake Wingra, you were never going to see the lake change as far as its uh, clarity and its um, algae levels and all that. I'm not exactly familiar with all the Lake Wingra goals, but I think they wanted clear water that you could stand in and see your toes. So um, at the second meeting, I suggested that we do a carp exclosure experiment.
0: This carp exclosure that Dick proposed was basically an underwater fence designed to keep all common carp out of a certain area just off the shore. That way he could see how the lake would transform over time if the carp were removed. And importantly, the public could see for their own eyes how different the lake could become. How did common carp even get into Lake Wingra?
2: So I don't know if I could tell exactly how they got into Lake Wingra, but generally uh, for common carp in the United States, they were brought over as uh, a food source for people you know, settling the United States and also as a recreational fish. I mean, common carp have been pretty important uh, in Europe and Asia. They've been domesticated in Asia for uh, more than 4,000 years and used as a food source there. And then it's also, again, a big recreational fish uh, in Europe, and Asia. I have a Learn How to Fish book that was written uh, by somebody in Great Britain. And throughout the entire book, they're talking about you know this prized carp that they're catching, which I've always chuckled about, um, just knowing how people think about the carp in the United States.
0: The U.S. government, the Fish Commission kind of started giving common carp to the states. Wisconsin even placed 35,000 carp in the state including near Lake Wingra.
2: And I've heard stories of uh, there being like aquarium cars on uh, trains traveling across the w- the Western US and the, the fish would just be thrown over the side as the, the railroad cars went over a body of water. So I think fisheries managers thought that the common carp was going to be this great fish for the United States because it was you know, great recreational fish, great food fish, but Quickly after it was introduced, uh, people didn't really have uh, the taste for common carp. They didn't like it, and it quickly fell out of favor.
0: Yeah. Well, I, I didn't know people like to fish for it, like, recreationally. That's so funny. Tim, would you?
2: I mean, I would. I, I, they could be fun to catch. And I do know uh, some fly anglers that really like traveling to the Bahamas for bonefish. Uh, they like practicing on common carp, so uh, my grad school advisor actually would fish Lake Huron for common carp because that was good practice for <laughs> fly fishing for bonefish in the Bahamas. <laughs> I'm sure some real fly angler is going to laugh at me that I said that. but
0: <laughs> Like Tim was saying, things changed after the first few years of carp stocking. Carp were doing really well in our waters, but people started noticing this murky water and less of the fish that they had come to know. And they said the carp didn't taste the same as they did in Europe where they really like to eat them.
3: They were planted here in the Wisconsin lakes during the uh, late 1800s. Wow. And there's a, a record of somebody noting that in, I think it was as early as 1906, that carp were causing high turbidity in Lake Wingra. Okay. So it didn't take very long for these carp, well adapted to warm waters, uh, and fairly fertile systems to just explode.
0: Back in 2005, Dick needed to prove that taking out the common carp out of Lake Wingar would help. So he and his team built this exclosure and they left that to the elements. And I want to show you the results.
1: <laughs> oh, that wasn't what I was expecting to see. That's crazy. I don't really understand like the scale of this photo.
2: Um, Just the scale of that photo, just looking it up real quick, it's a hectare, which about is two football fields.
1: But it looks like there's, like, this super, super murky green body of water. And it's, like, almost hard to tell where the water hits the shore because they're pretty much the same color green.
0: Yeah, so it looks like they they've put this fence in the water of two football fields, and inside is what looks like completely clear water.
1: Like, am I looking to the bottom of the lake in that I think so.
0: Yeah, and the rest of the lake is, like, green. And the delineation between the two is, like, night and day. Very stark. Yeah, I've never seen anything quite like this picture. Um, The contrast is so dramatic. And the people of Madison also noticed.
3: We, We put the exposure in in the fall or the late summer and fall of 2005. 2006, the Cap Times, the Capital Times, which had was a daily newspaper at the time, ran a full page. Uh, they had a front page photo of the carp exposure, that just dramatically showed. This was in August, I think it was, late August, uh, right before Labor Day. They dramatically showed how clear the water was in the exposure compared to the lake around it. And that just amazed people.
0: When was the last time you saw common carp on the front page of your local newspaper? (laughs) I don't believe I have. This got the public excited that they could have a new Lake Wingra. They got behind Dick's plan to flip the lake. So the plan was to remove the carp in the winter because they determined that the carp always gathered together at the bottom of the middle of the lake during the winter. So they hired a commercial fisher who came in with a 3,000 foot net. And to get the net under the ice and move it, they used these little submarine things and you would walk the top of the ice to guide the submarines down the lake and that would pull the net down and then they could pull all the fish out of the little hole in the ice. That sounds insanely complicated. I know. When I first heard of um, that they fished these out in the winter, I was just like, how? Do you do that? Just many people out there ice fishing. Um, the submarines is a good, a good touch. And they were able to get a whole semi-truck's worth of fish out of the lake. So I asked Dick, did the water quality improve after this?
3: Immediately, well, I'll say immediately, that summer, I have a photo of the beach that summer. The water was amazingly clear.
0: And did the people from, like, you know, the Friends of Lake Wingrad, were they happy with that?
3: Everybody loved the clear water, and the plants had not, you know, they hadn't had that much time to grow out yet. So from 2008, 9, and 10, I think everybody was really happy.
0: With the carp population drastically reduced, the sediment wasn't being stirred up as much, so... It settled and the lake basically turned from pea soup to a salad bowl over the course of one summer. That seems like
1: a simple solution.
0: <laughs> well it wasn't actually that simple. There's more to that story but first I want to hear about Crystal Lake. <music>
1: So I heard a legend a few summers ago that there were these super small living in Crystal Lake, which is this very small, perfectly round lake in Vilas County, which is in Northern Wisconsin. And that lake is completely isolated. Like there aren't any streams running in or out. And it's in the middle of this really popular
0: state forest campground. I really like the this image of a perfectly round lake though, with no streams coming in and out of it. <laughs> Yeah, it's really beautiful. It's surrounded by these
1: towering white pines and it's just a lovely place. Um, At the time, I knew that smelt were a type of invasive fish, but I had no idea what a super smelt was and I didn't understand how they would have gotten into such a remote lake.
4: I mean, I don't know if i call them super smelt. It's just, like I said, I think when we move into a natural environment, Um, There is, there's variability among individuals of what they can tolerate. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I'd necessarily call them super smelt.
1: That was Greg Sass. (laughs) He's demoting them. (laughs) He leads the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources Fisheries Department, supervises the state's fisheries research program, and he and other researchers have spent almost two decades of field seasons learning how to manage rainbow smelt.
4: Yeah, there's really a long history here, and I've been, kind of involved with smelt removals right from the very beginning of our um, you know, battle, so to speak, to try to um, find ways to mitigate the negative effects or eradicate rainbow smelt from a system.
1: We're gonna start at the beginning with phase one, Sparkling Lake. Greg explained that rainbow smelt are a cold water fish native to the Eastern US. They're silver and pretty small, Um, roughly about the length of my thumb to my pinky if I spread out my fingers, but I also have kind of small hands. Um, They entered the Great Lakes through the canals that were built during the 1800s.
2: I think the mean of introduction for like Michigan, Superior, Huron was actually they were stocked in a Michigan lake in the early 1900s, and then they escaped into the upper Great Lakes
1: Greg doesn't know for sure how smelt were introduced to Crystal Lake, but that lake and a few others in the Northwoods have had smelt since at least the 1980s. It's not like every lake up there has smelt, but the concern is that because some do, if you're a fisherman, you could easily transport them from a lake that has them to a lake that doesn't. What makes smelt kind of a problem for people who like to fish is that they eat juvenile walleye, perch, and cisco. and they'll compete with them for other food resources.
4: That's where smelts are interesting, is that they're not just like at the top of the food chain, they sit in the middle. And so they're not super specialized, they're more generalized between those two um, trophic levels.
1: Which means that they eat both fish and plankton. Crystal Lake isn't the only inland lake where smelt have become established and been really successful. Sparkling Lake, which is a few miles west of Crystal, has had smelt since the 1980s. Since then, the walleye perch in Cisco, you know they're these valuable sport fish, people really like to fish for them. Um, this walleye perch in Cisco in that lake have practically disappeared. So Greg and the people he works with at this point are just wondering what would happen if you could just make all of the smelt go away? Would the walleye come back? Is it possible to return a lake to the way it was before an aquatic invasive got there. So it's 2001 and Greg, who is a postdoc at UW Madison at this point, wanted to know what would happen if they took all of the smelt out. The goal?
4: To extirpate.
1: Which meant that they would start netting as many smelt from Sparkling Lake as possible the second the ice came off the water, which is normally when smelts start to spawn. Then they would double down on the remaining smelt by bolstering walleye populations through stocking and fishing regulation. In the first year of that project, Greg and his team netted 10,000 pounds of smelt out of a lake that's smaller than this average size of a Wisconsin farm.
0: That seems like a crazy amount of fish to come out of this little lake. I know. I mean, I guess it's not little, but wow.
4: We did a good job of knocking the smelt down.
1: But as the years went on, they never saw the walleye numbers that they were hoping for.
4: Um, Towards the end of it, we were finding that as we knocked those adults down, they just produced more eggs and they really fought back against us in a big way um, and kind of replenished themselves. And so what we were finding is that we couldn't get in there quick enough with nets because they were either spawning underneath the ice or spawning before we could actually get the nets in the water.
1: By taking out all of the smelt that spawned after the ice melted, they may have unintentionally created a smelt population that spawned before the ice came off, which made their smelt removal project so much harder.
4: Towards the last years of me leading that project in 2005 and 2006, I was out there with ice chisels in any way possible, basically breaking up the ice, trying to get nets in,
2: I feel like this is a really interesting example of how quickly selection, right, can work in this. Because if right. you, know, you have this kind of curve of when when smelt spawn in sparkling lake, yeah, you know, there was probably this small percentage of them uh, on like early end of the curve that are like, you know what, we think it's worth expending all these extra this extra energy and uh, maybe reduce success, then we can maybe escape predators, right? <laughs>
1: Right. They were able to bring the smelt population down, but the smelt never actually went
4: away. They were really resilient. Um, Their behavior changed to an extent, and, you know, we never achieved eradication.
0: I can't decide if it makes me feel like humans are really small or really, really powerful (laughs) because we can influence, like, an animal population really quickly, but also, like... Yeah, you got duped by the smelt.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I... I don't know if I have figured out a great way to communicate it, but I always just like to try to impress on people um, how resilient nature is and things find a way. I, I think there's examples, just how a lot of things that happen are really random.
1: Greg finishes his postdoc and there are some missing years where he's working at a field station in Illinois. But in 2011, he gets hired by the Wisconsin DNR and he finds himself back in the Northwoods and in the middle of another smelt removal project, which brings us to phase two, Crystal Lake. Before we get any further, I think it's important to understand what happens in a lake in the summer.
2: When you have a really deep lake, um, the the sun will warm up the top layer of the water, but then that energy doesn't get down as far um, as the entire lake and so you'll get two different temperatures within the lake and the top of the lake might approach, you know, 70 degrees where that bottom of the lake will still be uh, you know, around 40 degrees. And that creates two different layers of water in the lake. And it's pretty well defined. Uh, if you have like a, you know, a fish finder or sonar, you can sometimes see that uh, on some of the sonars on boats. And so you might look at like 20 feet or so for the thermocline.
0: Is thermocline the... The division?
2: Yep, it's the division. So Mm -hmm. it's a pretty narrow band where the water quickly changes temperatures.
1: So imagine you jump off a boat into the water and you're diving and you're diving. And, you know, the top of the water is going to be pretty warm. But then all of a sudden it just gets really, really cold. Like, yeah, you can feel that.
0: Yeah. Yes.
1: Yeah. (laughs) So in... In Crystal Lake, Greg explained that on average, the top, that top layer is around 70 degrees. And by the time you're in the bottom waters, it could be as cold as 40 degrees. And around 20 feet is when you have that change in density and it goes from hot to cold. And rainbow smelt prefer, you know, they thrive in Lake Superior. They love deep, cold water. So they're not going to be in that hotter top part of Crystal Lake. So the thought is, if you can't take the smelt out of the lake, can you just change the lake so that no smelt, no self-respecting smelt would ever want to
4: live there? Um, If we push that temperature up high enough, um, that should eliminate rainbow smelt from Crystal Lake.
1: And they were going to do that
4: by physically mixing
1: the lake or never letting it stratify to bring warm surface waters down to the deepest, coldest part of the lake or the part where all the smelt were.
0: What do you mean mixing a lake? Like how would you even go about mixing a whole lake? I
1: had such a hard time picturing what was going on, but I found this video on YouTube that kind of shows. You can skip to a minute 30,
0: The basic idea behind the jelly mixing system is to move large membranes up and down through the water column. The upward motion of the jellies is controlled by adding air to a bladder that causes them to float. After jellies surface, this air is vented and they sink back down to the bottom of the lake. This vertical movement mixes the stratified lake temperatures and can raise the temperature of smelt's habitat by as much as 14 degrees Celsius.
1: It's not like you can just go on Amazon and say, yes, I would like membranes (laughs) to do my smelt removal project. We
2: needed kind of a specialty product, which was a large membrane that would span our stainless steel frame.
1: People were describing waking up super, super early in the morning to call suppliers in different time zones. The three
2: of us, on average, probably made around 100 phone calls a day to all these different vendors.
1: And then there was this period of time where all of these shipments of equipment were coming in to this research station in the middle of the woods. What are you doing, Brown? Most of these people uh, are freshwater ecologists, engineers. not engineers. I think that's an important detail. Um, what are you doing,
0: Chester? Making <laughs> butter. <laughs> Jeremy messes this up. The whole project's over. Pressure's on, Jay. They have like a octagonal frame that they've built and then they're attaching the black jelly part to it around the outside
2: we're at the uh, ace parking lot and it's well after ace closes it is uh, 11 30.
4: what's done? a good word we're law done. dog Woo! we're done
0: people we're are in canoes oh wait what
4: <laughs> they
0: like put um like a circle that looked kind of like it was just floating, but now it's like expanding, rising out of the water. Like the bladder kind of looks like um, a trampoline, like the the black part of the trampoline in the water. In the end, you end up with these black
1: balloon-like structures floating in the middle of the lake, and then every so often they'll inflate with air, and they'll rise to the surface and prevent the lake from ever stratifying, and hopefully then, make it so that the temperatures at the bottom are just a little bit warmer because it's bringing that warm surface water down into the deepest, smeltiest part of the lake.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Browner! Oh, dude, that is so different! It is! What's up, guys? What are you about to do? We're gonna raise a jelly.
0: Whoa, I'm glad they documented this whole thing with with a video.
1: Someone took a photo from the shore of one of the gigantic black balloons rising to the surface and it looked like Loch Ness Monster. I can see that only in the middle of this public campground (laughs) in northern Wisconsin.
4: Um, Now, I will say the mixing did a really good job at dropping numbers down. So it decreased the number of rainbow smelt greatly, but it did not eliminate them from the system.
0: Wait, so the smelt survived? What it
1: looked like was that the smelt that could withstand the higher temperatures or at least could figure out how to change their behavior enough to adapt, those were the smelt that survived that summer. And those were the super smelt.
0: Oh my gosh, so after all of that work, there is still smelt in the lake? It seems like they came so close to eradication, but they never achieved it.
1: Did they eradicate all the carp in Wingra? Or was that even like the goal?
0: I don't think it was necessarily the goal, but I'll tell you what happened.
1: Picture this. It's a Friday night in the summer in Wisconsin. There's blues playing on the radio and you're on your way to a fish fry. Are you getting walleye or perch? I'm a big fan of perch. Interesting. What about you? Um, I think walleye <laughs> most of the time. Um, would you get pan fried or deep fried? Oh, pan fried completely. Same. Yeah. <laughs> Did you know that the majority of the seafood that Americans eat each year is imported from other countries? By purchasing fish from Wisconsin fish farmers and Great Lakes commercial fishers, you're keeping your food dollars close to home and supporting local family businesses. Our fish producers follow laws that protect fish populations, human health, and the environment to produce a sustainable product. Visit eatwisconsinfish.org for recipes, a consumer guide, and more. Wisconsin Fish. Local.
0: Healthy. Delicious
1: bonnie i just learned that there's this really beautiful state natural area on lake michigan that's just a few miles away from my house which was so surprising to me because i live in a really urban area and i feel like i found all of the parks around me but this one's called fairy chasm and there's like a stream that cuts a hundred foot gorge out and drains down into the lake and apparently it's like in it, like its own little microclimate zone, and all of these trees that you wouldn't expect to see unless you're like a hundred miles north of here are all growing in this ravine that's so close to me.
0: Bo, oh, that sounds amazing. Where did you see that?
1: I was browsing coastal state natural areas in Wisconsin through the Wisconsin Coastal Guide, which is this online map that contains all types of information about Wisconsin's fresh coast, from where to find coastal state natural areas like this one, to the best beaches, to where to see lighthouses or dive for shipwrecks or public boat launches. It's a really great tool for locals and visitors, and you can explore the Wisconsin Coast Guide for yourself on the Sea Grant website by visiting wisconsincoastalguide.org.
0: So back at Lake Wingara, about half of the carp have been removed, and that summer it was miraculously clear.
3: 2008, 9, and 10, I think everybody was really happy. Then the plants started to get out a little more in eleven, and By 2012, aquatic plants were pretty dense and it was yeah. mostly milfoil.
0: Without all the carp clouding up the lake, the plants at the bottom of the lake could finally get sunlight.
3: So the lake being shallow, aquatic plants just you know took over.
0: Yeah, which aquatic plants were the
3: most Well, okay, there's there are many many native plant species in this lake because it's never had any management. It's never had any chemicals, any herbicides to put in Eurasian water milfoil. The exotic invaded Lake Wingra. Uh, it actually, it was first I think shown up in the in the Madison Lakes uh, in the early '60s. I think that's when it was finally documented that it mm-hmm. came here.
2: I re I really would have liked that to be a different plant than Eurasian water milfoil.
0: So a lot of times, the native aquatic plants they'll reproduce with seeds or rhizomes, which are kind of like roots that can sprout new plants. But Eurasian water milfoil reproduces in a different way, doesn't it?
2: So Eurasian water milfoil is an invasive plant. It's uh, in more than 800 lakes here in Wisconsin. And when I think about Eurasian water milfoil spread, I usually think of fragmentation. So uh, like fragments of it on a boat being brought someplace in uh, establishing that way or you know, a piece of it breaking off in the water column and settling someplace and growing into a new plant that way. But it can also reproduce sexually through seeds.
0: That's uh, that's pretty big that like if you cut up a plant into like five sections that all of them could grow a new plant. Like I could see how they would reproduce a lot faster than native plants. All of the plants took advantage of the new sunlight, but Eurasian water milfoil took over. It spread to new areas carpeting the bottom of Lake Wingra, and it got to be so dense that they had to use water tractors to mow through it and clear beaches and cut paths for boats, which is just the ultimate irony to me that they put all this work into removing one invasive and then another invasive, in this case Eurasian water milfoil, just takes over and you have a new problem. And. In the meantime, flipping a lake requires this delicately balanced system. Most lakes are connected to streams and other lakes, and so how would you prevent the carp population from just getting out of hand again and those carp from kind of coming back in?
3: Well, one of the interesting things about Wingra is that we didn't need to remove all the carp. There are still carp in the lake. In fact, we had a big flood in June of 2013 when uh, lake monona water level went really high and the dam to wingra got inundated i have a photo of it and people saw this was in june and that's prime spawning season for carp They it was seen carp migrating across the dam into wingra Mm. so uh the carp densities in wingra are maybe going back up but if you have a fishery that's still established bluegills it's been, it's been research, particularly by scientists in Minnesota, have shown bluegills will really suppress carp from successfully spawning. I mean, they'll spawn, and the eggs will be just devoured by bluegills. They love k- carp caviar, you There's, know.
0: Is there a lot of bluegills in
3: Windera? Oh, it's loaded with bluegills.
0: That seems so frustrating to see carp flowing back into the lake again after a flood, after all your hard work. Instead of completely removing all the carp, Dick is saying that you just have to remove enough. Enough that the bluegill will rebound and they'll eat the carp eggs and keep the carp numbers down. And this will give other fish like smallmouth bass time to rebound and theoretically, you have a sustained lake. But it just seems like a really delicate balance. One that could be thrown off by say a spring flood. So what Dick recommend this lake treatment?
3: There's there's reasons to do it, Uh, but I think you have to look at each lake uh, to see uh, if if it would work. I I think we need to look at in-lake management where it makes sense, but not think that also it is a panacea for everything.
0: The temptation of clear water is real. There's this vision of Lake Wingra that it's clear and the plants are mild, and you can swim in it all summer without algal blooms. Sailboats can ease across the surface and the occasional angler can motor around looking for fish. But can this be a reality or is this just going to be battle of the invasive species? So many invasions are
1: the unintended consequences of a well-intended introduction, like people stocking carp in Lake Wingra to make this royal fish accessible to the public. But it just goes to show how the way invasions are managed are also fraught with unintended consequences, like opening up a habitat vacuum for a problem plant like Eurasian watermelfoil.
0: Or creating super
1: smelt. Actually, Greg is still trying to figure that one out. And if there were any unintended consequences, They've created opportunities for researchers to ask more questions about what role smelt play in lake ecosystems, which is how phase three starts. Crystal Lake is part of a network of intensely studied lakes around the Northwoods. And every year, scientists do population surveys of the fish on those lakes. And in the years after the crystal mix, Greg said they started to see something hopeful.
4: Yellow perch that were back in Crystal Lake that we hadn't seen in abundances that we hadn't seen until um, since the early '80s when smelt got in, there were multiple generations of
1: perch. Young perch were surviving,
4: and so we said, "This is really interesting. We should do something about this."
1: Is there a way that we can still have smelt in the system, but also see perch and walleye and Cisco recover?
4: So if we can keep their numbers suppressed enough, where they're not having as much pressure and you know extirpating walleye or Cisco or perch. Can we keep their numbers low enough naturally um, through the abundance of native species? Can we keep them suppressed in the long term? Maybe that's the recipe is that we have to have, you know, cisco and yellow perch and walleye in the system while we're trying to eliminate smelt in order to have an effect. That makes sense.
1: In future springs, they'll be running experiments to study the smelt populations on Crystal and Sparkling Lake, by conducting some spring removals, um, they're trying to lower the smelt population, but not eradicate it this time, and hopefully make room for walleye, yellow perch, and cisco to rebound.
0: But he went to such enormous lengths to get the smelt completely out of those lakes. I asked Greg how his perspective
1: on eradication as an end-all-be-all solution to smelt management has changed over the years. He's been involved in so many attempts to completely remove smelt from a system.
4: I would say as a graduate student and still now, I'm a very optimistic person. Mm-hmm. That where there's a will, there's a way, and we can get this done, um, you know, through hard work and, and some good theory in our efforts. And I think that's how I would have definitely felt during the sparkling smelt removal and maybe early on with this. Uh, but as I've grown as a scientist and worked with invasive species more, Um, I've also come to the realization that I think our best case scenario is to, you know, we we talk about these alternate stable states, for example, we have a clear water state and we have a turbid state. You can only have one or the other. I think there's states that exist in between those that can also be stable.
0: Introduced is produced and hosted by Bonnie Willison and Sydney Wydell. Please subscribe, rate, and review, and share this podcast with a friend. You can find Wisconsin Sea Grant on Twitter at uwisegrant and on Facebook at University of Wisconsin Sea Grant and Water Resources Institute. We'd love to hear from you. Send in your questions and comments to Bonnie at aqua.wisc.edu. You can listen to our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Play. Thanks for tuning in.